But there is the thing that allows you to keep telling the full, harsh truth. He's more independent because of the anonymity, even though he would be independent with the money that he has. Today we're speaking with the essayist and an on frog thinker, Astral. We get a rare glimpse into a thinking as it happens, as he shares his essay in progress, and we concretize in real time. It's a great uh, back and forth. We cover Astral's birth as an anon frog alter ego, the genius of anonymity as the frog sporting pool that is Twitter, Anon as ground of independent lordship, as you see with the larger Anons, and his thought and essay on emergent archetypes of the digital age. A great one for anyone who's very thoughtful. Check it out. What do you think about the anonymity then? What's the benefit of doing it? I can speak for myself, which is that this is a hobby for me. This is something I'm doing on the side. I would love to be a full-time podcaster. It's not really an avenue that's open to me right now. I'm doing this uh, to get the conversations going and, and really to like showcase the interesting people that I've that I meet because every single person including you that I've either been on their show or they've been on mine I've met I've met every single one of them on Twitter um so this is my way of not only showcasing people I admire whose intellects I admire but also for me to have the interesting conversations with them that I want to have so the anonymity I think is different for everyone if I if I was independently wealthy you know, I'm not really sure what my motivation would be, uh, but but I I I got into the an anonymity to begin with more, um, for lack of a better term, for the fun of it, because I never I didn't plan to to become a podcaster, nor did I have any intention of posting anything terribly irreverent on Twitter. I just saw that everyone else like was doing it and I saw that like the smartest people around were doing it and I liked it because I realized that instead of seeing a guy named you know John Smith with a picture of his of his uh, silly looking mug and his bad haircut um giving off his his banal takes on you know the news of the day you get these hilarious names I mean some of the names are just so outlandish and funny or these creative names with uh, a, a cool image that sets a certain vibe or a certain tone. And then that way, the personality doesn't have to come through their, their content. It can just be whatever it is they want to communicate. So when I saw that, I thought this is way better, you know, because I was tweeting under my own name and um, the content was similar, but it was like it was like a little bit like watered down. And I had, you know, a couple hundred followers and it was just nothing. And when I stumbled into the Anon world, which I did through reading Bap's book and listening to his podcast, I thought, well, this is way cooler. These are the coolest people. I mean, I had been hanging out online in some capacity for like 10 years at that point. And I was like, well, these are definitely the coolest, smartest, funniest people I've met anywhere online ever. Frog Twitter. And it's still that's still the case. So for me, I did it to begin with as part of this persona because that's how I that's how and when I came up with the astral flight simulation not not that, not that you asked but I was like well what okay so what am I going to do anonymously so I thought well all right I have this whole like idea in my head of an astral flight simulation um because I was reading McLuhan at the time and I'm still reading McLuhan I probably always will so I was trying to like come up with a McLuhan analysis of the internet like apply his observation of televisual culture to the internet so I thought, okay, well, I'll come up with this persona 
and I'll uh, I'll tweet about like McLuhan critique of the internet. But because I liked and was a fan of Bronze Age Pervert, I met all the other fans of his podcast, and they just started calling me Astral. Because the name of my 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 thing at the time was Astral Flight Simulation or whatever. That's how I stumbled into it. But now I'm like, this is better than my persona because you're not marketing yourself. You're not marketing your personal ego. You're marketing your persona. And I can say and do things that I might that might give me pause if I was marketing my name and my face. And I'm not even necessarily referring to just purely right-wing content. I just mean even if I want to tell a funny or embarrassing story um, or anything like that. So my perception of BAP, and it seemed like you kind of had a different take. Maybe you could clarify what you think, um, is that he probably could get away with uh, – being just being his personal self, but I interpret it as he has more integrity than that. That's that's how I understand him, because he does at certain times kind of admonish people for like face fagging, as he calls it. I don't know if you you can say that on YouTube. Uh, the fit the face showing their face, and it's it becomes their persona is super wrapped up in their ego. And it's more important than the message. Where as far as I can tell, Bap cares more about the message and the ideas than he does about like self-aggrandizement. And all the accolades he gets are from my position of just, you know, being like an outside observer are a uh, uh, hundred thousand percent deserved and purely based on merit you know there was somebody who tweeted it was either like scott adams or jordan peterson who tweeted like uh, oh you can you can hide behind your fake anonymous persona and you you get accolades uh not for your ideas but for your persona and someone responded and it was somebody in in the bap sphere i forgot who it was it might be rogue scholar press uh great account one, one of my idols um he uh whoever it was though said that you got this exactly backwards that he's riding completely on his ideas only and his his the power of his personality or persona and this goes for all anons is uh secondary to that yeah right i i think that it's sort of halfway between the two in that that's how it begins just ideas but of course you build a Bronze Age pervert is a, a person. It is a persona. So it has value to the man Bronze Age pervert because of over time it's built its identity, right? And it has value, even financial. So there is going to be, over time, there is going to be a kind of pressure there, but not like it would be if it was your actual name on your face. So I think that the reason perhaps to do it or perhaps why he does, uh, still promotes doing it is because it allows more of the truth of the ideas rather than, well, he might talk about face fagging, as you put it, whatever. But the truth of it is the benefit of it is that is that it's more likely to generate less negative emotion or pressure 
still not showing your face because there will be some there's some based on the fact that there is an established identity which is him right and there is all the and there is a, uh, in it, there is the pleasure and such that goes with that it's not the same as some seeing your face but still that in his psyche that persona still is him he, he gets pleasure from uh, it and it, even himself just helping people but he's identified with it in himself he his ego is certainly would be identified with it because it's his account. You get pride from it. They can't stop that happening. Just the psyche in general. That's just what's going to happen. But what is interesting about what you did say is you mentioned that uh, your persona, uh, it, you, it became your persona, right? The, the astral thing. It's, I found it interesting when you were talking about what came up for me was you were kind of uh, knighted with the, the name astral, right? By the community, which is kind of interesting. And also, I, I thought, too, is what's more true, because you don't present the face fag identity, uh, you actually present all, less the persona and more the, how the self sees the persona, which is how Jung would say that um, your identity, when it's not meeting the world, right? Like, astral is kind of your identity when you're not trying to show the world this thing that's a negotiation between you and the world, which is kind of how the self sees you as an individual, which is pretty interesting. It's the opposite of the persona, uh, but it is uh, the individual, right? But it's the more authentic being that's underneath the, yeah. the, the uh, persona. So you actually, that's what Anon does. It allows you to show authentically. Well, people can get away with themselves and actually uh, perhaps just show more of the id, more of the... Because uh, Twitter's very, you're very uh, likely to unleash things in your psyche that aren't well thought through and it's just a response to something right but when it's thoughtful like most of uh, good frog twitter is it's sort of thoughtful um critiques and whatnot i think that is that their natural feeling about what they that they're not centering themselves right so that came up as well for me um yeah and it's also almost that identity is kind of like a daemon it's this thing that's created it is outside you it is part of your identity but because you get pride from it, but it is separate from you because it's a separate identity as well. So there's this thing, free-flowing thing, an astral projection, if you like, of you out there. It is you, though. It's it may, Maybe you can comment on perhaps astral is more you than you are. <laughs> you are. Do you spend more time hanging out with or, or uh, in this community, or do you have a stronger connection with this community on twitter the frog twitter than you do with the people you hang out with real in real life and i know because you you uh hung out with um disgraced propagandists recently yeah yeah uh so perhaps they're more your guys than now than but he's not anon though yeah but still it's a little bit different still frog twitter and you still still like hangs out with the scene yeah and he he's got a podcast and we met because we were both on the new right podcast uh, one word after the other and those guys were like yeah you guys should be friends so we we went on each other's podcast and then we became IRL real you know real life friends and he's uh he, you know he's the type of guy I mean we just we're, we're like I mean no matter when or where we met we would we would have been instant friends so um but but there's a lot of people you meet who don't let you get through the the persona they don't they do not want their real self to come through which is totally fine i mean i i i only do it sometimes you know with certain people um 
So, okay, a few questions in there. The first is uh, because I, I actually really think this is important to talk about, and it does kind of get talked about a lot. So I don't want to – I want to try to talk about it without retreading territory that everyone's already gone over 10 times. Um, but this is a historically significant development in American culture uh, because there's thousands of uh, – and Western culture because there's you know, Europeans as well. Uh, there's thousands of Anans out there. And some of them are spending a lot of their time, you know, like Raw Egg was a guest on Tucker as an Anon, which is like, I don't even know if that's ever happened before. Something like that, like something that big. You know what I mean? So this is really gaining power and picking up steam. And I think there's multiple factors to it. The first is, of course, it's like uh, the the Iron Curtain is coming down on on Western culture, and it's like the communist regime is uh, gulagging people uh, by not, by unpersoning them. It's like you get sent to like the proverbial gulag by being unpersoned or deplatformed. Um, so the the anonymity, while I understand and I feel like people over focus on this, the anonymity is partially so that people can express their right wing politics. Certainly, and that's a factor. But it, it also adds this flair, this uh, flavor to this to the group that other people don't have. It adds this mystique that is very uh, attractive, like to outsiders. Um, and I mean, just everything about it adds up to it being uh, like a new underground subculture. There's a high barrier to entry. You can't really hang out if you don't really hold like the views but you also have to like uh uh recognize the the customs the the customs of being anonymous and 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 keeping secrecy and these are very real things people will lose their jobs and their livelihoods and things like that for sure but um it, it's also like people care so much about the culture that you have to adhere to these anonymous rules to keep the integrity of the culture. And BAP is the leader of that scene. And uh, so for the leader to, to stick to it, to the extent that he does, it's like, how can you help? But like, and another one is zero HP Lovecraft too. They're like the two biggest guys and, and, and Raig, I guess um, you can't help, but like follow their example. You know what I mean? If you're a guy like me, I mean to say, if you're a guy like me, because I, I came up as a fan of these people. I'm here because I read Bab's book and it like it it blew me away. It spoke to something deep inside me that I had like basically buried forever because I just thought that like normie hell was all there was to life. And uh, to answer your other question. Yeah, I uh, am. the I am more me as astral than I am as the person I am in real life. I mean, you know, not when I'm with my wife and with my close friends, but like when I'm at work or in like a social setting, uh, I just basically just turn my personality off. I mean, and I've said this to people too, like there's the whole autism thing, like people throw the word autism around and part of autism is like being like uh, awkward in social settings, like not being able to pick up on social cues. Like if you get me around a, a, a people that I'm comfortable around, I I won't shut up, and I'm like I, to the point where I'm like overbearing. But if you put me in like a social setting, like the most I can muster to do is like sort of stand near people who are having like normal 
human interactions. <laughs> I just sort of like stand there and I'm like quiet and I'm like, okay, I've stood here for the, you know, prerequisite amount of time to like try to be social. And now I'm going to like walk away and go back and like sit with my like silent thoughts, which is what I normally would be doing anyway. So to be able to come online to even, and, and God knows like what I just described, like there's people online who have much more extreme, like social, whatever. I don't even have social anxiety. I just like don't want to be a part of it anymore. Um, so you go online and I'm glad you said astral projecting because that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that like the real you is in what people call meat space and you're astral projecting your consciousness onto the astral realm, which is the internet, which is the digital realm, which is cyberspace. And the people that you're meeting online are avatars who also have their like, well, like daemons is like, you said that as well. Like they have their real life counterpart sitting somewhere else and you're not interacting with that. You're interacting with, the avatar online. So it's like, but it's not really the astral plane. It's, it's actual hardware that exists in the world and it's machines and it's electrical processes that are run by, you know, fossil fuel power or whatever. So it's a, it's a, it's like being in a simulator of a transcendent realm of, of the astral plane. It's like, you're not, actually astral projecting you're simulating astral projection which is why you know the astral flight simulation is just a word for the internet it's just a phrase that i'm using for the internet yeah and in a, in a way it's um it's an enframed in heidegger's terminology yeah. it's an enframed uh, version of uh forward throwing your being into something so that's the trouble with it that's one thing is that your being, the being that you are, and for your being to be in the world, to be, to be, because cognition reaches out from you, and it does reach out into the internet, even though it's inframed. But to have the highest fidelity of connect of uh, of your being is to actually sit down with someone, right? To actually be there with them, to see so much is missed with over text. So I think there is that element that I think the community is going to need a kind of uh, coven or a uh, conclave of people that actually do see meet each other like you like right. you said you met you met uh, disgraced propagandists or whatnot we have to have that uh, in person element of it or else it will i think degenerate into uh, because that's what we have over the left we have over them is is they're happy for it to just turn into bugman, uh, degenerated, split apartness, right? But I think we'll be back first to uh, on the ground uh, binding together. That also builds loyalty as well, right? It's a hard thing to have loyalty when it's internet bonds that you could just throw. That is would be one one of my criticisms of anonymity is that you could just throw it away. So say that you you'd be throwing away a following and all that, but. Say you uh, something happens and you want to do something that's immoral with this or whatever, dox someone or whatever it might be uh, to whoever it is. You can always throw away that identity 
So the stakes that happen with an in-person identity is that that person puts you at risk, right? So you you met disgraced propagandists in real life. So now this relationship has a more solid foundation because you're both at risk to each other. Whereas if you're both anonymous, you're not at risk to each other, right? So nothing's sacrificed. Nothing's right, uh, right. Uh, put forward because that's what friendship is. Is that I put myself forward to some degree by associating with you publicly, that's my sacrifice to this because I you know, like you, whatever. Without that, um, there's less a uh, reason to stay in it. So I can just be thrown away very easily. So that'd be my only criticism of if it doesn't. And for me personally, I wouldn't want to k- keep developing a relationship with someone if they wouldn't eventually want to hang out or something, right? You know, I wouldn't want to uh, uh, me know who that person was. I do it for a while, right? For a year or whatever. But eventually I would sort of be like, well, okay, you know, do we not trust each other now? Like, is this a bit, you know? So I would say that surely it would develop in that direction eventually, but perhaps not. Perhaps with someone that's as large as a Bronze Age perfect or whatnot, he'll just always be whatever that is. Um, Unless he's meet, meet, like I said, he's, you said he's met certain people. So that's different. He is at least meeting people and realize that the Parts of the community know who that is. I thought he got doxxed anyway. I thought someone doxxed him or I don't, maybe the people are just talking shit yeah, on the I, internet. But. Yeah, I think it's just people talking shit on the internet. As far as I'm concerned, Bronze Age pervert's not doxxed until he says he's doxxed. And if he – if he, uh, and I, you know, I said earlier, I don't know if it's going to make it into the show or not, that I think he met like Thomas 7-7. I don't actually know if he did now that I think about it. Um, But uh, yeah, he he's he's – kind of different though he's kind of different than like the regular anons because he's so big and he's so popular and so many people know who he is um the meeting up in real life thing is like it's tricky it's tricky you got to be careful like some people are very against it they don't want to do it at all and and i don't you know it's not you don't really it's not good you don't really want to breach broach the subject too often uh but you know these friendships develop develop like a bond with somebody and then and then it may naturally go that way um again it has to be stressed like disgrace prop isn't anonymous you know so it's like and there's other people who hang out that aren't anonymous that are doing stuff in real life that are that are friends with anons um who know who know their real identities so there are real things happening in real life like there's uh there's a catholic land movement that's happening and some of the and homesteaders, the homesteaders, uh, some of these people are not anonymous, but they they do um, interact with us. And some of them are anonymous and they kind of it's kind of known that they're in the community of the in real life homesteaders. Um, there are events that happen. There's uh, stuff in New York City. I don't really know who puts all of it on, but I know like some of it's put on by Peter Thiel and Moldbug. Uh, Terror House Press has done some in real life things. Delicious Tacos is anonymous, and he's had some, like, public readings and things like that. Um, so it, I think Delicious Tacos is the one that I was thinking of, not Thomas Seven, that, like, new BAP in real life. I don't know. It's all it's on BAP's show. It's uh, I'm getting this from BAP's podcast. So um, if you go listen to that, it's he, he talks about it. I, I can't remember who, who it was. But, like, you, the other thing that I need to stress here is that, like, there's different generations and different waves of people. So I didn't come around until like 2020 and there's groups of people who were around like the neo reaction group 
they they started in like the early 2000s and there's people on Twitter right now who've been around for you know 20 years uh there this legendary sallow forum with Thomas Seven and Bap and Niccolo and other people you know I'm not I wasn't there for any of that they all knew each other from back then and then the many others Hartistes show um all these different communities like are kind of thrown together in this like Twitter melting pot now and they each have their own like scene basically uh and you know my own like group of friends like grew up around what I've been doing online so I spend a lot of time I try to like I try to like surround myself with like other content creators I mean I have I have a lot of people I consider friends online um but the people I try to like work with the closest are people I want to like us to feed off of each other because we're creating things we're writing we're making podcasts or some people have a website raw egg has the man's world uh and and things like that so um i the real life thing doesn't become that big of an issue most of the time you know there's stuff happening in new york city there's stuff happening in la uh i know something happened in in england recently because Moldbug gave a talk there uh or a presentation or whatever so there is stuff that's happening curtis yarvin is big i don't know if you you know if you're into his like thought at all or any of his projects but he's like a big big force in this and he's not anonymous you know what i mean and he's got his foot in and out of the anonymous world as well but um for you know for me like i have a family and other people lots of other people here have families so they don't really want to like you know this is what we're doing instead of like playing football or excuse me watching football or going to the bar or whatever normal dads do i don't know what they do they watch sports i guess um so this is what I'm doing instead of like sitting in front of the TV and vegging out every night or playing video games or whatever they do. So 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 the bringing it into real life thing is it's an interesting tricky thing because like if you're hanging out on Twitter with other content creators um it's as if in the past you're writing letters to a writer that you admire and they're writing letters back to you. It's like the same type of coordination and communication, the same idea anyway. Uh, the real life thing is more like if you're trying to build like a real coalition and make things happen. And it looks to me, and I don't know if you're talking about uh, culture or politics, but I've firmly come to the conclusion that like the only thing we should be doing is culture. We can talk about politics, but I feel like what we're doing is we're doing culture. So if there's this like movement going on of like, whatever, podcasters, writers, what have you, content creators, if there was any real-life element, I would want it to be um, a, a focused around that. Like, So the, re the reason why Disgrace Prop came to where I am is because I'm in New York, and there was an event, a mold, um, an event with Moldbug and James O'Keefe, the DeVary Ball, happened in New York. And he came to New York, and I was, I was here, so we met up, you know? Um, so it is, it is happening, but it's also like, I mean, maybe you can make the case for why it's important to, to do in real life, but I mean, beyond, beyond the obvious, you know, Oh, I would just say that it's a solidarity. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a building of bonds and, and deep loyalty 
that you get that you just can't get when you, if you're just not there with the person, brotherhood, real brotherhood, right? You can get a certain degree of that, but still there is a missing fidelity of the, of true being that you just don't have otherwise. Um, and, you know, I've already made the point about that. No point sort of recapitulating uh, that point of um, uh, the stakes being there for both people uh, really yeah, yeah. associating. But, yeah, I, I, I think the, the, the thing I find most interesting about all this is it opens up, because you mentioned letter writing between, uh, you know, in past ages between thinkers, right? Like two authors, yeah, two thinkers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. But, but that, that's right. So many... We, we read back these great relationships of people that formed up with letters like uh, Carlyle and uh, Goethe. Um, the list goes on. Um, what I also find is it allows for a situation like we had in England where you had these rural lords, these eccentric lords that had independent wealth. And what that allowed them to do was to pursue the truth. Because they didn't have this, uh, they didn't have to, and they were eccentrics, right? Like um, the Cavendish family. Uh, the Cavendishes funded a lot of stuff, but they also, he was big into parapsychology, that sort of thing, right? Looking into, uh, I think he was a founding member of that uh, psychical society. Um, and they've sort of been, they've been, uh, what's the word? Um, they were right to a certain degree because uh as uh, Bernardo Kalstrop said, uh, said recently in his book, his book about on Jung, is that there is some truth to the parapsychological uh, data that people have researched, that people have been doing. I'm not saying I'm, it's, uh, it, I'm not full on board with it, but th they did full empirical experiments and they did a meta study of all of that. So they were, have sort of been uh, not exonerated, what's the word? But anyway, point is rural lords they had this independence right so what happens in this day and age is there's a kind of populist rural lord like bap that comes up or whoever it is that is funded by the audience itself but it allows them to be free from the constraints of an institution of being in a hierarchy where they're forced to sort of capitulate to a structure that's already been overrun to something and that's what we find where we find ourselves people complain about technology and the internet but what it's allowed for is this what we're doing right now it's allowed for a, the free association of people like that time back then when we had these rural laws before it was overrun, but also where these principalities can emerge, like BAP principality, the Nietzschean principality, right? That's BAP's, There's other ones, right? There's Heideggerians uh, and other figures that have a sort of principality of, of followers that have a sort of central daemon, which is the identity. Under that, and BAP is a great example of a, of a sort of distributed cognition around all the people under him. And you see these emergent figures. And you, other people, you'll form your own ones where you sort of split off a bit from the BAP thought eventually because you're just naturally developing as a thinker. Um, but that's the great thing is that the independence allows for all that to occur. And those people, those rural lords, end up saving England in so many scenarios, protecting it because they had that independence. So that's one thing that came up for me in, uh, when you were talking is that we sort of returned to, to a, a place where, um, but in a populist way where it can be completely merit. It, it doesn't just have to be aristocracy, uh, though I do like aristocracy. It's not, so, not a, so much a bad thing because it does have a certain ethic and people are educated, but that, that's been long dead anyway. But yeah, that's, that's what it came up for me. But maybe we can go a bit into your speaking of persona. Um, 
we could go a bit into your recent essay um, and your thesis about that, which from reading it, what I got from it was that there are, in different eras, there are sort of a new element of, of a mental illness created. Um, also, I liked your essay, which was talking about the different in different eras, um, different horizons. Uh, allowing for a different type of mythos to emerge was quite interesting as well. So, yeah, I think that, that there's there's truth to this idea because schizophrenia, that's that, um, with the digital persona thing, it's very true that there was no such thing as schizophrenia before the modern age. It, it's, it's particular to the disintegration of community bonds that, that uh, obviously was a regulating factor in um, stopping that from emerging. Because it is a very left-brain phenomenon of schizophrenia. It's a... Like the more Asperger's you are, they're, they're related. So I think in your essay, you were, you were describing a new emergent mental illnesses. But you could probably call it more a heightening... Because schizophrenia is similar, and they're both left-brain phenomena, uh, in that it's, it, it lacks context is that the Asperger's person is hyper-rational because he doesn't have the, the, the right brain context which would make him a religious person, so relies on that axiomatic thinking rather than the contextual. Same with the schizophrenic, is that it's constantly seeing uh, patterns and things, but in a left brain mode because it doesn't have the context to ground it, which Heidegger would call world, right? The world is the right brain mode. It's, it's, and on top of that is that rational element. So... Yeah, I think you're right in that essay that, that uh, there is an emergence. It seems like a sort of parabolic one rather than a different thing each time. But anyway, maybe you can talk a bit about that, your, your uh, theorizing. Yeah, well, you've, you've, you've mentioned Jung and Heidegger, so uh, I, think you, I think you are perfectly situated to kind of understand what I'm trying to do with those essays. So just a final thought, what you're saying about the anonymity and stuff. like, And this all, by the way, this is all very Jungian, isn't it? Like, these avatars are are, are 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 evoking archetypes because when you use a, an image instead of your own face, uh, it becomes like a symbol or an avatar for your persona, and um, it becomes like evocative of an archetype that you're trying to embody or that you're trying to express. Um, and you know something I've been thinking about, but I haven't really developed at all is like archetypes dying and new ones coming in, like. Are are all archetypes uh, permanent, or are they are they things that fade mm. with time? So I think that there are some new archetypes coming in, and the new archetypes uh, are part of the shift in the cultural psyche. But uh, let, let me just finish the thought about the anonymity. Mm. Um, and my my best moments. I'm glad what you said about like meeting up in real life. That I agree with you completely, completely because. Some people seem to think that there's this like really urgent political like uh, uh, strategy or program that we need to be like politics because we're right wing, quote unquote, are such a big factor of the discourse that like people act like what we're doing is this political thing and this like political program. And they want to see the actualization of like their political mm. ideals or uh, and. I think it's probably a bad idea mm. to act from that position. I think it's better to consider, and this I get this from Moldbug, uh, to consider 
culture and the mm-hmm. culture changes the zeitgeist and then the politics flow from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, in, in context of what you said, in my best moments when I'm feeling very optimistic, which is most of the time lately, mm-hmm. I've been in a very optimistic mood about everything. I see it as you're saying, like Yarvin, Bap, Roig Nationalist, Zero HP Lovecraft, they're, al- they're alchemists and they're scribes and they're noblemen and they're, you know, mm-hmm. they're knights and they're aristocrats. And like, we're all like the, we're the, the, the landed knights or the, uh, you know what I mean? Whatever. We're the, we're the people who uh, make up the court, you know, um, squires or m- people moving the, uh, up to be lords themselves. That's the all those idea. things. Exactly right. But then when I'm feeling a little bit less optimistic, I think, no, we're not the next elite and we're not the next, we're not the intellectual vanguard. Really what we are is we're the Roman rabble hanging out in the forum, uh, while the while the while the emperor gets up to whatever his schemes are that that uh, you know brings wealth to him and his his dynasty and the and the military, and we're just like getting the free bread and circuses and hanging out in the forum all day just talking shit to each other, and the internet is like the digital Roman forum where all the riffraff hangs out and we just chit chat, uh, and that's all this amounts to. Uh, but so so for it to go from that to an actual uh, um, I don't know the, the ne- intele- intellectual vanguard. Uh, the in real life thing has to happen, and Moldbug knows that, and that's why he's doing it. So I just wanted to say that to like put the capstone on what we were talking about anonymity. Uh, there's also a whole Jungian thing I'd like to get into, but I don't think we're gonna have time for it. So I'll skip to the essay now. The essay I sent you isn't finished, so I just wanted to give you an idea of where I was going with it. I have a three part essay in mind. Uh, each essay, I know the first one's probably five, 10,000 words. This one's probably going to be that. And then the third one would be just as long. The first one is called Digital Horizons. The, the current one is called Digital Persona. And then the last one, I think maybe will be called Digital Narratives. I'm not quite sure. And then I'm considering a fourth uh, Digital Archetypes. So digital horizon is basically saying that like there's a mythological horizon that's created by, you know, the the circumstances of the epoch. Um, so the religion grows out of uh, organically out of the culture or out of the soil. Um, and the the people who practice that religion live in their locality, wherever that happens to be. This essay, this part talks about medieval Europe. So the peasantry there. Um and they work close with the soil and they work with the land. So their horizon is uh, like agrarian, right? I, I call it a mythological horizon, though. Uh, but it's it, because their, their, their vision, their gaze is focused uh, collectively down into the earth where they're growing their food and, and, and getting sustenance from the soil. And they're living sort of uh, in... An untamed wild sometimes, especially like the the country folk. So the monsters do things um, in myths that happen to them in real life. And they embody the actual creatures that they're like subjected to. So infant mortality rate was high back then. So like the fairies and the gnomes and the goblins are going to come steal your baby. Uh, The threat of a... a of a famine or not a famine, but like a, a crop failure was always there. They're always eking their living off the soil. 
So uh, the fairies and the gnomes, you know, if you don't please them, the, the nature spirits, uh, they're going to steal your crop. So it's like this mythological manifestation of like actually like real life threats, you know, and the monsters oftentimes are like the big bad wolf, which they're actually subjected to wolves, like the predation of wolves. They can't go into the forest. It's a very real thing. So this becomes like the, the culture anxiety, right? And then in a technological era, and I'll skip ahead to the, the digital persona thing, but just to take you through like the concept um, during like the uh, age of exploration and then the space age, it's like aliens or you have uh, like the mole men, right? That live underground in Antarctica in this novel. I can't remember now. I name it in the book though, or in the essay uh, during the age of exploration, uh, they go to Antarctica and they find a tunnel and they go underneath and there's mole men there. Or the Jules Verne, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and it's a big squid. This is while we are exploring the last uh, reaches of the earth, the last unexplored regions of the earth. Uh, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's um, Mountains of Madness is a great example of what I'm talking about, right? So that defines like the, the, the horizon at that time was like the circumference of the globe. And then the next horizon is outer space. So... The mythology of that era was like the space, the UFOs and aliens coming down and abducting you. Now, here's the tie-in to what you were talking about, about like the schizophrenia and everything. The digital horizon is where like the cultural focus is on the Internet. So the cultural focus was on the agrarian, on the land, and then it was on, the cultural focus was on um, the globe, circumnavigating the globe for the age of exploration. And then it was in space for the space age. And now it's in cyberspace. That's where like the cultural energy is all focused. And the monsters that are coming out of there are AI. The quintessential archetypical monster of this age is AI. So the digital persona essay is going to take you through uh, the different abnormal psychological states that are either created but more likely they are exacerbated by different shifts through the ages. So for modernity and late modernity, it's uh, neuroses, forms of nervous disorders that prevent psychological growth that are brought about by two things, the imposition of the rational mind over the unconscious mind because the people in the earlier, earlier epochs are living sort of more um, in the womb of like the family or of like the – the ethnically homogenous, you know, village or remote village or or ghetto in the city where they're, where they're living of, um, you know, Irish people or Jewish people or German people in different parts of the world in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, so they're sort of like in the womb still of their like uh, extensive familial bonds and their extensive ethnic bonds. And um if you read uh, – I know Bap is big on this book. I read it because of him, the uh, John Cudahy's book. Um, what is that book he's always talking about? Uh, John Murray Cudahy. Uh, I'll look the name of the book up. But uh, he says in that book that Freud's um, study of neuroses is not something you can like apply across society writ large. Now – I agree with that. When I read Jung and Freud, it seems to me like they're trying to apply all of their observations to like everyone. Whereas I think it only applies to specific people in specific circumstances. And according to Cudahy, the ordeal of civility is what it is. According to Cudahy, 
what's happening is that the um, Freud would call it like the the shtetl dweller who lives like is pure id. In order to matriculate into like Anglo Western society, he has to impose the super ego, and the imposition of the super ego is uh, the rational mind taking over the irrational mind, and um, it creates like a distance between like your impulse and the way you act in society. That's like what the super ego, it, the ego is what society sees, and the super ego is what modulates that, right? So neurosis is a nervous disorder particular to the experience of coming up out of you know the pre-modern familial kinship net web where you're pure id and matriculating into like the western post-enlightenment rational world uh and i talk about how like uh the underground man raskalnikov and ivan from ivan ivan karmatsov are examples of someone trying to like superimpose the rational mind onto like themselves and Dostoevsky says in Notes from Underground that the the man from from underground wasn't acting uh, the underground man was he says he wasn't acting out of from, from his heart it was all yeah. stuff he cooked up with his rational brain yeah. and he acted based on that and not who he was as a person. And this is exactly the message of Raskolnikov because Raskolnikov comes up with this using his rational mind mm. and the people in Siberia that he meets say, why did you do this? This isn't who you are. This isn't how you act. It's because the imposition of the, of, of, of post enlightenment rationality. Now you, you want to come in there. So I'll, I'll, take I'll go. Even f- I go in further with the Russ is, is with the Russ. It's not only that it is the modern, it's that it's a different hermeneutic circle that comes in from the West. And the, the Rus are, the Tsar and the elites are of that being, that Western being. The Rus and the uh, Muscovites, I think the people that, that uh, actually Russian that have been infected, you could say it, with these ideas. Yeah, it's, how it's, even, wor- it. it's even worse because those ideas, say it's in the West, right? At least they're grounded. As Heide- if you want to talk about it in Heideggerian terminology, at least they're grounded in, in Western mythos and ethic. Whereas the Rus, you've got archaeo moderns, these Rus who, who <clears throat> they learn another language, but their being is grounded in something different from where those ideas come from, right? So Dugan actually talks about this. Is that it's so much worse because, and it, it, rather than just being the Freudian rational and this, it's, it's actually you have this alien hermeneutic circle for where all this stuff came from that they learn that they're completely not uh, their immune system. If, even if they, we, you could say that the West has one, perhaps some sort of being used to it. This thing comes in and they're almost possessed by it. And the way it's put is that for the Russ, they the thought, the rational thought feels as if it is, they are the being in the world. They are this thing that is closer to the line of being that feels less subjective. It feels more, more, more immediate to them. The line between subject and object, whether that's artificial or not, that's up to you to decide. Uh, but to them, it feels as if that line is very blurred, right? So when this thing comes in, this rational thing, to them, that the thoughts that come from it, the they, 
if you want to call it das man, if you want to call it the thing, that talking rational mind feels very alien to them. Whereas to us, this is how it's put by um, Dugan anyway, to us it feels as if it's, uh, it is us. It's more natural, right? But yeah, and I guess Dostoevsky, he talks about a lot of these people that you talk about um, in your essay. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. From them being archaeo-modern and them just having a completely different grounding in their being than us, that that would feel to them as something alien and their actual being is this other thing that they identify with, which is actually more collective. It's more between people. Exactly yeah. right. No, I'm glad you used the Heideggerian terminology. That that actually says it better than I was trying to say it because these people and now now the ordeal of civility is specifically about jewish people coming out of the shtetl and trying to uh acculturate to like western goy culture but you can apply it to pretty much everyone in that period anyway like jews and uh excuse me uh irish and italians and others coming from their homeland and moving to america or or and this is uh this is what I'm going to talk about in the digital narratives piece. Um, not it's not just ethnically people coming out of their ethnic like enclaves into like an urban uh, excuse me into a, a ethnically diverse area where everyone's kind of expected to to follow like more or less like waspy you know cultural norms is the idea. Um, it's not just that; it's also the provincial man going to the city. Which is which is the reason why I said it's for like the digital narrative thing is because that's like how the novel like came into its own in the in the nineteenth century was the depiction of the provincial man kind of making himself anew in the city and and changing to the different moral codes of the city. Um, but the I'm glad you said the Heideggerian term embeddedness because that's exactly right. Uh, Nick Land says. Uh, Accelerationism has always been about deterritorialization. Mm. This is what deterritorialization. De go on. Say that again. Which means de-being, basically, because that's what being essentially is. But go on. Go well, on. Yeah, or, or de-worlding. Yeah, de-worlding. Um, because this is what deterritorialization is. These folks are embedded in the world from whence they come. All right, they're embedded in the cultural, religious, uh, uh, regional place. And then they come up out of that and they're they're deworlded or they're like disembodied. They're deterritorialized and they have to re-territorialize to a whole new culture, a whole new set of norms, a whole new uh, mode of being uh, in the in the modern world. Right. And this is a this is a unique set of circumstances because uh, 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 you can you can draw some parallels to like a provincial person in america moving to a big city but really it's kind of gone now like if you're from like the suburbs of i don't even know where some mid-sized city and you move to a big city uh you're still kind of going from one culture to the same culture in a different place um it's not not totally true but it's not like it used to be it's not like you're going from a completely different world to a totally new world so that's why i say that in the late modern period, like neuroses is identified by Freud and Jung in the people who are going through this transition, these people who are being deterritorialized and they're unable to re-territorialize to the new uh, mode of being. Um, I, and I was saying in the essay that like this process like creates like excess 
people that have to be dealt with in some way. They have to society has to figure out how to deal with these people, and they they're dealt with in different ways. Um, you know, the medieval world and like the religious world has like a whole set of ways to deal with this, either through religious practice. Or by finding a place for these people in a monastery or whatever, uh, whatever the case may be. But in modernity, um, these people become a problem when they weren't one before. And uh, I'll skip the postmodern thing for now, but the, the postmodern thing is uh, schizophrenia. The archetypical mental illness for postmodernity is schizophrenia. And uh, most of this is coming from either Deleuze and Guattari's Capitalism and Schizophrenia books or um, the place they get it from which is Marshall McLuhan's book, Gutenberg Galaxy, uh, and the and the, the splitting of the psyche uh, in post-modernity. Uh, that's a whole different story. I'm going to skip it for a second to get to digital modernity, what I was saying before about how the digital horizon, the monster coming out of the digital horizon was artificial intelligence. So the stories we tell ourselves that are, that are like uh, quintessential to the digital age are stories about AI. Both movies like The Matrix and Ex Machina, but also and and Neuromancer, and Blade Runner, but also stories that we tell each other about, like this like coming AI utopia. And some people say like AI is going to like liberate humanity and like make everything better. And some people have a dystopic view of it. They say AI is going to like you know exterminate humanity or something like that. Or they're gonna they're gonna um, turn us all into superfluous people. And the and I say that the uh, archetypical mental illness for the digital age is um autism and asperger's disease now bear with me i'm coming i'm coming to a point here i'm this is all culminating in a point uh so if you'll just bear with me one more second if you uh the issue with like autism right is like the inability to like situate yourself in the context of the milieu around you and you respond either inappropriately or you don't respond at all to social cues OK, that's like the, the defining feature of like Asperger's and 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 that creates like this flat affect, like autistic people have this flat aspect and you can't they don't pick up on like facial expressions and body language and they don't give it off either and they don't give it off properly either. And my argument is going to be in this essay that this mimics the face of a person sitting there using a computer or using uh, like a cell phone or something because you may be going through all this crazy stimulation of like certain part of your uh, cerebral cortex by the visual images that you're seeing and the sounds and everything, but you're not actually having this in real life experience. You're, you're, you, 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 so if we were out at a, at a party or at a rave or we were doing something in real life, something dynamic like snowboarding or skydiving, our bodies would respond to it in a certain way and our facial expressions would go through like a whole range of emotions. And you could watch a video and you could say like, oh, that person's feeling exhilaration or joy or fear or trepidation or terror or anger in this moment. But if you're the person holding the phone or the computer and you're looking at it, you have this blank stare and it's it's the blank stare of the autist. And where else do you see that blank stare? You see it in the AI characters like the T-1000 in Terminator 2. You see it in the Ex Machina, the cyborg woman, uh, uh, Neo and um, – not not Neo but uh, Agent Smith in the, the AI people. They all have uh, – uh, 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 Ryan Gosling and Blade Runner. 
They all have this like blank, featureless, lack of expression face. And this is the archetypical face. I don't know if you've read um, uh, A Thousand Plateaus, but there's a chapter on faciality about how like, you know, the eyes are the window to the world. I know that's very corny thing to say. Um, um, so, so they talk about like the signifier, right? So like, for example, uh, in ancient Rome, right? They put the face of the emperor on the, the, the gold coin because he's the signifier for that culture. Uh, in Byzantine, you have the arc, you have the, uh, the icons, you have the face of Christ. Well, not just the Byzantines, like all the medieval people, you have the face of Christ and the face of Mary. And that's like the facial signifier that people orient around and they like imbue that and draw spiritual like vitality from it. I mean, think about the story in the Byzantine, uh, the, the Byzantine, uh, Constantine, Constantinople was under attack and they were losing. And then they held up an icon of the Virgin Mary over the walls and the troops saw it and they rallied and they fought off the invaders. This is the power of like the, of the iconic face. Yeah. It's an external press of being expression expression right it's it's you can't see anything without that you need you could hear someone's tone of voice i suppose but that without that you don't have being that's what opens being to other people but yeah that's interesting you see all that is that i thought what came up for me in there is this idea of the blank face i think there's some truth you've uncovered there is this is there really are you really feeling something if there isn't the feedback loop yeah, you might have the emotion, but is it? It's not fully circulated unless it's shared, really. If, if it's completely you're... solipsistic. It's yes, like the, but the it's not real, is it? Solipsism. It's not. No, it's not re- real. It doesn't actually fully connect. When you're really there in the world with someone, there's something heightened about it. The being is actually properly opening. You're there's a almost you could say in a dialogue there is an emergent phenomena that 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 comes from that, and you don't when you disconnect that you have. It's almost like a short circuit of some kind, which is what, like you say, it's the, that's what Asperger's is and schizophrenia. When you disintegrate things, you actually lose the distributed cognition. The, when you have the distributed cognition, an, an emergent being almost comes. When you have a proper dialogue, right? When the dialogue really gets running and it's less dialectic, it's less two lectures and it's more mutual opening and disclosing, something third appears, the we. It's like the we space. Cognitive science describes this as well, right? The we space, that's where daemons came from. They're real. It's a real thing, right? A higher order being emerges. And you don't get that unless you have the facial features that open the being between you. Because what is really that makes us human is this thing that opens between us. It's We are not the human being. We don't own being. Being is the thing between you and I. It's this bubble that's your avatar. That you see the little head there? Where we don't, the being is the, is, is, is the circle, right? And that's between us. And without the facial feedback, it doesn't actually properly open. And that's the holy thing. That's what, what no other creature has. That's divine. And we stop seeing it as divine. That's what the technology's done. We think it's just normal, but no, we're the void in beings for being itself. That bubble, nothing else has. That bubble of being that is epistemology, right? To know something is to have being come into you. And you'd have the bubble of that. 
right? And that's holy. And we've stopped seeing it as holy. It's turned away from us, as Heidegger talks about. And the expressions being blank is an example of the closing and the turning away of being itself. I, I think that's great. It's very well said. And you're right about this is this is exactly what I'm trying to say. Like you, you're saying it like better than me. <laughs> it's my thing. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but no, you're exactly right. So this you said that, that there's the interplay between the two beings and then this third thing comes into being. This is why I was saying in the essay that um, this doesn't happen to everyone, not everyone who's going through the transition, because this is all form a, a, a result of transition. There's a transition of like uh, cultural persona. The cultural psyche is morphing. It's maturing and sometimes it's regressing. And some people are able to individuate into the new culture and some people aren't. And the people who don't individuate are the neurotics or the schizophrenics or the autists. So you see a rise of the archetypical mental illness in the people who are unable to like individuate into the new mode of being. And and I said it becomes a problem for society because you get things like spree shooters or you get things like trans the transgender thing. These people are all like being like shed from because because they they're yeah because they misunderstand uh the process that's going on and they and they they get into this like abnormal psychology thing uh this abnormal abnormally psychological mode of being um and and it turns into this virus i mean it turns it does turn into this mind virus um because everyone knows and this is what i was saying about archetypes coming into being okay before and I don't know if I can incorporate this or if I have to make it a fourth essay. But the spree shooter and the and the and the transgender person are the two archetypes that I watch come into being. And I my perspective, right, is that these things and Jung this is Jung talks about I get this from Jung in his book Ion. Um I I don't have time to give the example that he gives, but I have given this example elsewhere. If you if you check out my content, I talk more about it. But a new archetype is born in the like the collective unconscious and it begins to manifest itself in different ways and in the 1970s is when i see it start you see things like um texas chainsaw massacre and taxi driver are the two best examples you have travis bickle who goes out and commits this like spree shooting this he's like the the first mass shooter right or you have uh you have the character of uh leatherface who they live in this house and he lives with his family and he's wearing the mask of a woman. And when it's like dinner time, he puts on like a dress and an apron and puts makeup on and like does his hair uh, in like a literal dead woman's skin suit. And this to me is like the inception of these new archetypes that are emerging in the digital age of the of the spree shooter and, and the tranny. And then you if you if you trace this up through the last 50 years, you see it and people are starting to notice this. Uh, the Silence of the Lambs, the Buffalo Bill, same thing, wearing women's skin suit. He's a man who – who uh, I won't get into the nitty-gritty details. Everyone knows the movie, and everybody knows what Buffalo Bill does. Um, the Basketball Diaries, you have a guy who goes and shoots up his school, right? These things this – is, this is the stirring of a new archetype emerging that erupts from hyperreality. And, and film – make no mistake about this. Film is the new mythology of the digital and the and the postmodern era and the 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 the, the uh, 
yeah, the postmodern era. Film is uh, it's not literature. Literature is something totally different. Literature is the rational brain, the rational mind trying to make sense of being in the world. Whereas film is more of a throwback to the archetypes and the symbols of the dream world. So, and David Lynch, this is all over David Lynch. This is what David Lynch says about movies, that films are dreams, right? So, 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 so these archetypes emerging in film is as if a collective dream is happening with this new beast, this new rough beast slouching towards, you know, America. Um, and the, this beast is like this is the inception point in the film, which is the collective unconscious of the dream world. And it erupts from the unconscious into the real. And it doesn't happen until the digital age proper is fully underway. You may have some isolated incidences here and there. But if you think about it, it doesn't become a cultural trend until the digital age is fully underway. Columbine happens in 2001, and then it doesn't become normal until like Virginia Tech and other things like that. This is deep in the in the in the in the digital age. The tranny thing like doesn't really blow up until like 2014 ish and after that. So <clears throat> I I'm calling it a birth of a new archetype. I I think that. The, the shooter thing does seem like that could be possible. The tranny thing uh, fits quite nicely into the carnival and Janice, which is that, that androgyny has existed in Mythos for a long time, right? I think what's happening with the, with the tranny thing is what's happening is the carnival is flipped. We used to have the Jubilee. The Jubilee was a time where you could... We used to wear these masks, which were the tranny masks, whatever they were. The, the, the worst parts of your psyche were displayed during the carnival, right? What's happened is, is people are now wearing those masks full time. So it's inverted. So the act, what, what is the worst parts of our psyche are now being pushed forward yeah, by, but... by groups, right? Uh, and that's what I think you see. It's the, it's the carnival, uh, manifesting. It's the, uh, oh. the... okay. So. Yes, but th this is the thing you have to understand about, like, religious cultures. They provide an outlet for these things. Th th what you're talking about is like an off-gassing of these uh, unconscious pressures that are building up inside of people. And you, you relegate them to these sanctioned events. And they're oftentimes, like religious ceremonies or they're, they're things like the carnival, like you're talking about. So like the whole like Dionysian thing, like the Apollonian versus the Dionysian, the Apollonian is the order and Dionysian is the chaos and a healthy society knows that they need to let the Dionysian breathe and come out or else it's going to like eat away at them from the inside and it's going to eventually roar forth and uh, consume them. So that's why you have to have things like festivals and feast days and carnivals because you, you let these archetypes sort of out into the light of day and have their day, and then you can put them back away. But we haven't done that properly. Yeah, that's, that's, we're, we're, we're all screwed up. We've, so, yeah, well, we've sorry, disconnected I, the rituals and, and events that used to blow those things off, um, that used to allow the pattern. Because what an archetype is, is it's a pattern uh, in, re in reality itself, actually. Jung wasn't just talking about, in his metaphysic, he wasn't just thinking about uh, the unconscious. He believed that the unconscious, that was also in reality. You had the what was manifestation and what was behind it 
was where the forms are, right? He has a, a elements of, of Platonism in how he thinks yeah, about Yeah, no, I like that. That's well um, said. So he, he sees it in both. So the archetypes are a pattern in the psyche or the unconscious in which content dribbles into. So well, all that stuff you're talking about, the examples of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's the content that uh, bubbles into the patterns. And so you, what you're doing is great because you're seeing a pattern and saying, ah, this is the same archetype across these different things emerging, right? And then so that's what you're looking for. You're looking for empirical evidence to say, ah, this is uh, continuously appearing. But every now and then, because someone that is a, like a tr the traditionalist school would say, this stuff's not emergent. It's, it's a emanation from forms that exist, uh, tr transcendently that are, are before manifestation ever comes about, right? That's what the traditionalist school would say. So whatever the form or archetype may be, and these, these are, these symbolic things happen in reality as well. It's not just in the unconscious. That's what they would say. So they would say whatever these archetypes are that already exist and they're just manifestations about. But I think you have emergent ones too. I agree with you. You have new archetypes, which are patterns of behavior. You could say that, which, again, it's not the content itself. It's not just a character you see and it's a mimetic. No, it's in the psyche. It's a pattern though. And the appearance fills in above it, right? Almost like a riverbed and which the water's poured into to display it. So the archetype is, is sort of disconnected from you don't really see the archetype itself. It almost uh, forward throws or projects, projects using the, this content. But yeah, like you said, I do think new ones emerge. And emergence describes, uh, like say, a dynamic system. A dynamic system, it's not that they just change. It's not relativism. It's, you know, a dynamo and a generator. When you put enough generators together and you put them all on belts and they're connected, they regulate each other, right? And a higher order virtual engines established so if one engine slows down because they're all connected by belts they find this mean that's kind of what happens in emergence and so what you're talking about with this emergent archetypes the same sort of thing is this is these these this this bifurcation of all this this dynamism comes up to the next level spirals up like a tornado is a is a, is a emergent uh, phenomena same sort of thing starts spiraling to create a new emergent phenomena and then once that's established, though, you've kind of got a dynamic system that keeps it going and regulates it. And then for, for so it's not relative. It's established because of whatever the environment is, like you're saying with a school shooter. We should keep going into this idea of the school shooter. That does seem new. I can't think of any other thing, this individualistic thing that's the reverse of the hero. Um, in a way, that does seem like a, a new archetype. I think you're onto something there with the school shooter. But yeah, once it's established, it exists and it reinforces its form. So it's, yeah, I just want to get to the relativist there. It's not just uh, oh, a new archetype or new meme came about and people copy the meme. No, it's a system in the psyche that's, and they're rare. These new archetypes are really rare. They're epoch driven. That's what Jung talks about. It's eat, they're epoch things. The new ones are really, really, uh, Rare. Once they're established, they reinforce their form. That's not uh, relative, but yeah. What do you make of that? That is so very well said. That is so very well said. I can't wait to like go back and listen to this again because this you're giving me a lot to, to draw on because, again, for the listener, we are talking about a piece that is still in production yeah, yeah, 100%. I'm working it's on. Just, I'm, I'm so, no, thank you for sending good. that, I'm, by the way. It's, this is awesome feedback. This is exactly what I need. I'm very glad I sent this to you. Mm. Um because I need to clarify something because I, I, I agree with what you said and I think the way you put it is superb. 
So let me clarify something. I did say a new archetype comes into being. Mm. Um, I need to rephrase that a little bit. It's not that they're new as symbols. Rather, they're they're emergent as um, as definitive of a certain era. So they're the mm. prevailing mm. archetype. Mm. They're the they become prevailing archetypes mm. and it doesn't necessarily mean they've never existed before as archetypes however i still actually think the it may way... be it may be new i'm not saying it's not either i i gave two examples <laughs> there it could either be something behind manifestation or it could be something new i'm not picking a side there well no but it, but it could like if, even if, if it's if not you... like you're saying that it could just simply be a prevailingness doesn't it's not it, defeating right. your it theory. It goes from being. It goes from being. Uh, well, let me let, let me let me let me explain what I'm what I mean. Because if you read uh, the Golden Bough, it they it has shamans and and kings and things like literally wearing the skin of other tribes members during certain rituals. So so it's not a an a, it's not an archetype that never existed before. But it's an archetype that was buried underground, uh, and and it maybe you could trace a thread of it. Sure through cultural history and mythological history forever, right? But it's always been kind of minor in the background. It's never defined like interpersonal relationships. Whereas what I was trying to say before, like with the faciality thing, like the archetype of Mary, the archetype of uh, uh, baby Jesus was a prevailing archetype that like, imbued the civilization or imbued the ep epoch with spiritual like uh, uh, vitality and motivation and things like that. Whereas uh, so McLuhan talks about this. This is something I want to get into. McLu so, so McLuhan talks about this ratio of the senses and he talks about synesthesia. Excuse me. <laughs> I didn't get any water. I should have water by my side, but I don't. He talks about synesthesia. So there's this interplay. This goes back to exactly what you were saying before, okay, about the belts and the and the dynamic system, right? There's a ratio of the senses and there's synesthesia in which uh, vision provides or allows for or or creates some sort of tactility. Sound provides or relates some sort of uh, tactility of its own, right? And when you're like living like wholly in the world, in an audio world, an audible world, pre-literary, uh, before the printing press, before uh, artificial light and things like that, the ratio of the senses is different for that type of person living in that era than for a person who's used to living in electric light and reading a book and reading printed uh, uh, movable type, right? The ratio of the senses is thrown out of balance. So in the pre-modern world, for an audio-verbal world, like the world of rhetoric in ancient Greece, or the world of storytelling, myth-telling in the, the Middle Ages, the ratio favors hearing. And hearing takes like an outsized, outsized role in the balance of perception of reality. And then when you go to a world of artificial light with like printed movable phonetic type, uh, the ratio favors vision, okay? And vision uh, sort of takes over and and orders the way you perceive reality around you. This is what the book The Gutenberg Galaxy is in, is about. 
And then he's writing in postmodernity. So he's saying that film is audiovisual. So it changes the ratio yet again. So the people who live in an audiovisual society relate to their world and perceive their world differently. So what I'm trying to do is graft this perception onto the archetypes and say that there's a balance between the archetypes. And for some, for the cultural psyche to be healthy and to, 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 to uh, go through the world and navigate the world and navigate the specific, unique circumstances of the world in which this culture finds themselves, there has to be a balance or uh, in the ratio of the archetypes. And the easiest way to understand this, Jung talks about this all the time. Any midwit redditor on on the internet will talk about like the balance of the male and the female, the yin and the yang. Everything in Jungian, every every you know up junk up jumped Jungian is going to say that like you know this story is about the the balance of the masculine and the feminine, right? But those aren't the only two archetypes. So my argument is that different technology changes the ratio of the archetypes within the cultural psyche and that certain archetypes come to the fore that were in the background before. This is exactly how Heidegger talks about being. Heidegger even says that technology is what does this because being uh, uh, in a pre-technological age or in an age of like uh, earlier technology, like with hand tools and he uses the example of the water wheel or a bridge that goes, uh, a handmade bridge that goes over the river. He contrasts that to a dam, to a hydroelectric dam. And he says that uh, the being, the essence of technology is exacerbated or uh, it flourishes under this technology that goes against nature. So like the hydroelectric dam is the, it, it, the, the, the river does not actuate its essence in relation to the dam. It's the essence of technology. The dam represents the essence of technology. Whereas there's this like uh, interplay between the river and the water wheel or the windmill and the, and the wind, the way they generate power. The essence of technology does not assert itself over the world. And when you have uh, technology that sort of like is, is sort of integrated into the flow of nature – it doesn't affect humanity's essence. It doesn't affect humans' being, right? We, we're a, we are still living out our essence in relation to the world in that type of technology. But in you know, post-industrial technology, the, it conceals our being yes. and unconceals technology's being. Okay? Yeah, it, you could say that it, uh, the way that the telos, if you could even say there is one, um, <clears throat> it sort of challenges being to appear as, well, like he says, challenges forth. So, it, yeah, right. the way in which we, the way in which we apply our way of being, makes nature look as if the way it is, or even that's we're forcing it to appear. As it is. So in the way that you would, would used to happen because there was telos, because being was holy, because the whole, because we didn't have the utilitarian teleology or ends, we were a part of the context. The river was a holy thing. It just, what, uh, 
symbolically it, it appeared that way because being was facing us because it's facing away now because of the way we challenge everything to appear and the whole thing is designed that way but it's all of that is being the whole of being oh. itself is that and turned away so it's not that we can the way technology is is still being but it's yeah whole, but it's the need, essence of technology though yeah that's right which, it, it, which, which is, is still being which is still being but yeah, it, but it, it conceals. I'm sorry. I'm that's not right. Trying it to completely conceals. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Authentic being a completely exactly conceals. Right. right? That's exactly the problem right. because the whole teleology is turned to utilitarianism. The way that in which we look at the world looks this way. That's why it's all stale, right? Um, so I yeah I agree with what you're saying there. It's interesting so I, what you brought up was um, you're probably running out of time here, but. Um, just, I'll let you know when I have to go, but yeah. Oh, I am running out of time. Shoot. Um, I definitely want to hear your rejoinder. I mean, did I make it clear how my, my point is that as different aspects of being are covered up and revealed, it's like the ratio of the archetypes is thrown out of balance. And you have this uh, preferencing because of technology of this archetype of the skin wearer. You know what I'm saying? It makes sense like, in the sense that the hyper focus on, say, like left brain inauthenticity or which means that this, this mythos, this, which is you could consider unconscious, that's been pushed down, which Jung talks about as well. We don't even see it, right? But it's still that's there right. in the background. It's still there in the background. And that's now because it's been so pushed down, this is hyper-focus on rationality, what the propositional sphere, that's a good way of putting it, propositional knowledge. Everything is hyper-focused on what language and propositions can reveal, but they are completely limited in what they can reveal, Right perspectival knowledge which involves and pr procedural knowledge which involves the symbol which is what you're talking about and archetypes of symbol so if you're hyper -fo focused on propositional you don't see you can't even look at the symbols that emerge so they just they automatize and emerge anyway right but i do agree with what you're saying as well it does seem to be if you do limit certain forms of, of how you see media if you don't see people's face in person for instance whatnot you probably can't actually have the full symbolic experience emerge, which will allow you. Because what a symbol is simply something to mediate higher order understanding and, and truths. That's all a symbol is, right? It's a thing because a proposition itself can't get you certain truths. That's why the unconscious uh, pushes up things. If you listen to it, it will give you things in which you can mediate what you can't see with a rational mind. So... That's probably limited if you cut off certain forms of media, if you're only auditory, if you're in this. That does seem like there's something to what you're saying there, um, probably, in terms of how it limits symbols. I don't know if there's a particular... I would have to look into that, to, to, that whether there are particular symbolic symbols that yeah. focus merely on auditory or merely on this, and whether no, that no, does no, it. No, exactly, it's no, not, it's not exactly how McLuhan talks about it. Uh, the uh, auditory is actually uh, a more symbolic way of being than the visual the visual is much more left brain and uh, metaphor and symbol that's why the novel is like a realist uh, uh medium okay mythology is the one mythology which is auditory which is audible audio as well as the epic because the epic did not start as a written uh, mode of communication or it's not, it's not it's the medium of the epic poem started as spoken and sung so that's why those stories are mythological and metaphorical and highly symbolic whereas the novel 
starts from a written phonetic alphabetic text illuminated by artificial light, be a, 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 a candle or electric light or whatever. That's why it's uh, less real. This is this is what Don Quixote is about. Okay, Don Quixote is about the transition from the mythological old feudal order into the new realist like mercantile capitalist order. And he's living in the symbolic old order world and everyone else around him is living in the realist world that is determined by the Gutenberg galaxy. Well, that's why the book is called the Gutenberg galaxy, Gutenberg printing press. It sort of reorients society towards this more realist thing. So that's why Don Quixote is like looking at um, windmills and thinks they're giants and he attacks them because he's still living in the old audio. This I cannot believe that McLuhan wrote this whole book and doesn't talk about Don Quixote. It's like the perfect example of what he's talking about. But um, the, one of the – he gives an example of like the, the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's this mythological thing, right? But uh, rhetoric is like the transition – like the art of rhetoric, turning rhetoric into an art is like the transition from uh, the spoken, sung epic to the written world, word. And uh, Plato, right? This book, the preface to Plato is written by Marshall McLuhan's teacher. And he, the whole book is about how Plato like denigrates poetry. And he says, you know, uh, uh, he says poetry is like the old way. Because rhetoric is the new way at their time. And rhetoric is different than than poetry. So he's saying that, like, uh, we need to get rid of the old order, the old way, the old people uh, who are based on mythology. And rhetoric the, in the Socratic dialogue is much more focused on, uh, um, on reality. That's why Socrates' whole thing is like if the gods are the ones who make the rain, why is there no why, why is there no rain when there's no clouds in the sky? Okay, because they're applying rationality to the spoken word and it's transitory. And then once you get to Aristotle, it's like totally the written word, right? So this is the transitory phase I'm talking about. So we are living through a transition exactly like this from the televisual film celluloid world into the digital world. And and the and the perception of reality is changing, and symbols, symbolism, and imagery is reemerging. It's more important. The archetypes are becoming more important to us now than they were before, because uh, the digital world is like. Does this make sense? It's like less of a of a literary world. Yeah, I agree Liter with that. I, I I would reverse what McLuhan's saying. I'm not sure I agree with him. He was saying that the propositional, the, the speaking, is more. Uh, where symbols are. I think you mentioned that to begin with. I don't know if he says that. I well, no, it's not not the speaking. It's the audio, the fact that it's... The auditory, uh, yeah, uh, even that. I, auditory... I, do, I do think being is founded on that, but perspectival, there's something right. about visual symbols or perspectival that seems more fundamental. Yeah, it does, there is something fundamental no, he, to music, though, I suppose you could say as well. As where... he, he, he makes it no uncertain terms in the book, The Gutenberg Galaxy. He says, reading printed text... Uh, movable type front that that is only reprintable uh, excuse me reproducible that is a result of the Gutenberg uh, printing press mm. uh, he says that that is where perspective comes from 
mm-hmm. in no uncertain terms. He says uh, the the perspective of that we are used to oh, arises. I see what he means. The, the 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 gestalt, the zeitgeist, not perspectival the, the, knowledge itself, which is just a fundamental. No, no, no. I mean thing. like per- perspective. Uh, you mean perspective, the, the current like the modern frame? Line. You mean the horizon of modern frame? Hor- yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yes. Now that. I know what you're saying. I was going more fundamental with what I was talking about uh, in terms of like basic emergent. Well, according politics. to McLuhan, though, everything you're talking about flows from this. You, uh, feel, you see what I mean? I think the modern perspective does. I don't know. I, I need to read it. I need to read it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't mean to like drop this. Like, but um, it's a complex book. But uh, well, the things you're but, talking about are so, things I'm very knowledgeable about. Yeah, anyway. of course. Well, the emergence of no. consciousness, all that stuff is, is right, something right, right. I deeply read on. So. It's not alien to no, me. No, clearly. But I need to really hear his argument to actually, to, to, you know, to understand exactly what he's saying. But um, I mean, in principle, it sounds about right, at least in the, in the idea of an emergent, uh, changing me- media, uh, changing the form in which, uh, or limiting the way things can emerge, um, or what what is. I mean, the psyche is always there. There's, the unconscious is always there. That was there with primitive mentality before all of this. You see this in uh, uh, Lenny Bruns, the, the French sociologist, went uh, talked about this primitive mentality before the logos. Before that emerges, is this? This is a lot of Jung gets a lot of his stuff from this. This primitive mental, this theory of primitive mentality, which is these. Their ideas are very different in the way that the field of their ideas don't move like logic. Their interconnections are very different. They are. It's tough to explain, actually. So I get, probably, I get probably, exactly what you mean, though. But the, that, that we have that still. It's just we just don't see it anymore. It's underneath the, the linkages of all their. They associate things together. It's too hard to explain right now. Anyway, we don't have enough time. But yeah, that's always there. What Jung's unconscious is essentially what primitive mentality originally was. The unconscious on its own. So the, the logos, what we see right now, this, this, the subject is, is kind of made by, uh, or even in, in authentic being in a way, is made by uh, Aristotle, is made by Plato, is made by our development of logic, the way we see the world, this being bubble. And for that to evolve into the printed press would change the being bubble in a way itself to some sort of modern bubble, existential bubble that's different than the original one. But yeah. Uh, that- that reminds me, I, I, I got to get going. Uh, have you read Slaughter Dykes Bubbles trilogy? Is that a novel? Oh, that's interesting. Or... No. no, 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 no. It's interesting that you say that because that's what he says. He says that uh, we form, we become like enclosed in this bubble of like this interplay between us and the other. Mm. And it starts with the mother and the first bubble is uh, us in the placenta, mm. you know, uh, in in the mother's uterus and, and like – the connection we have with our mother as a bubble. And then when you're an infant, your mother stares lovingly into your eyes while she breastfeeds you. You have this like you're in the cocoon of this bubble. Mm. And then he talks about how, you know, a bubble, of course, is blown with the breath. Right. And that God breathes life into Adam's nostrils. So it's like he's blowing mm. a bubble and this is this forms this bubble. And his argument later in the third book, which I haven't read, but I've read the synopsis, but I read the first book. Where he talks about uh, uh, these these interpersonal relationships, this third thing you were talking about before that arises, is that he was saying that like we're in the it goes from a bubble to a sphere. It's called the Spheres trilogy. That's what it is, a bubble to a sphere. And then the one I haven't read is Foams, where he's basically saying it's like instead of us forming this like interpersonal bubble, this cocoon 
with this relationship with this other person we have, it's like a, a it's like foams pile little tiny micro bubbles piled on top of each other, mm. and each micro bubble is us by ourselves on the computer having this solipsistic relationship like mm. with the computer itself, and we're not like forming a bubble with others, so we're like adjacent to each other as foams, but we're not like integrated. Yeah, yeah integrated spheres with each other and you're using that terminology which is like so uh adroit to to, to this but i guess i guess you haven't read it um so well, listen, it's, con- I, it's connected with with being being essentially is an existential bubble he's right it's a great metaphor he's using there for what right, being, and he's being a heideggerian yeah well that makes he, sense that makes so sense. it makes sense yeah yeah but thanks so well, much I, for coming on man it's uh it's i think it's been a good talk we'll have another one at some stage we can talk more about uh young and archetypes and perhaps we'll have a bit more time to go into uh, the conversation flow. That was great, man. I think people really enjoy it. So. Yeah, I hope we do because me and you have clearly come out of the same like base foundational base of reading and thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the interplay, I'm very happy with it. And oh, there's a lot more to it, say, man. We did, it really isn't enough time, but 